You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, one of the things that brings me joy uh, recently is um, uh, an athlete, a basketball player named Stephen Curry that I love to watch. Stephen Curry is about six three-pointers away from having the uh, all-time record of three-pointers made in history of the NBA. Ray Allen is just, I think, six three-pointers ahead of him. And so I remember I'm a Jordan fan, true and, blue, true and blue, and as you know, if you have Jordan fans, it's really hard to get a Jordan fan to acknowledge anybody else in the world other than Michael Jordan, because there's something about that persona in the hearts and minds of American people. But uh, Stephen Curry has, has won my affections these days. He, uh, he's a tremendous, obviously, player. He's fun to watch. He's fluid. He's poetic, in my opinion. He's just a, a cool dude to watch. I remember somebody gave me the mixtape of him just hauling off three-pointers, like the way that coaches would teach you how not to shoot. He's hauling shots from the wrong places and with, with crazy push form <clears throat> in a fluid way, just making shots, and it's just poetry in motion. <clears throat> and people are saying, for better or for worse, he's changed the game when kids pull up at the Upward Star Center or at the uh, high school basketball tryouts or whatever, they're just hucking up shots from three-point land. How many of you guys know you've seen those kids? They don't shoot like Stephen Curry. So I can't tell if that's a good or a bad thing. And so no matter what, no matter what, his jersey sale is surpassing LeBron James at this point. Whoever you call the GOAT or whatever is the greatest player at this current age and era, um, Stephen Curry has changed the game. He's changed the analytics of spacing and pacing. Like the game is faster the defensive stuff is different. The way that we recruit, you know, uh, players, centers, forwards, all of them are all different because when you space the floor out like that, that, the passing angles extend and so forth. And so the game has changed, like him or not, by Stephen Curry. But I also think that if you really watch him closely, uh, which I do because I have the league pass now and I stay up way past my bedtime for those Pacific <laughs> Coast things, he's changed the game in terms of, uh, of, of logistics, but he's also changed the game in terms of culture. Stephen Curry is a player that continually has the reputation of infectious joy. Like, in other words, if the common, you know, uh, facial recognition of, of a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James or a Shaq, where there was a, a grimacing menace of tough athleticism, you see smiles on Stephen Curry's face when he hits three-pointers. And there's something contagious about that. And there's something that is indelibly you know, shown and proven over these years that the players around him tend to get better and the cultures in the locker room tend to get better because of his presence. He's transcended really even his three-point abilities. His culture in general and the way that he carries himself in the Lord ultimately has really, I think, made a profound impact on the game. And so, and so, and so in Nehemiah, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about joy, there's a, uh, a profound, strange little philosophy the Bible thinks about with joy because in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, uh, Nehemiah says that the joy of the Lord is our strength, which is interesting, right? Um, because children are joyful. Elves at Christmas time are joyful. Like, we don't associate that word joy with strength. CEOs aren't joyful. They're worried, they're bothered, they're anxious, they're angry, they're ambitious, but they're not, they're not joyful. Military generals are not joyful, right? The joy of the Lord, of our strength, is a profound thing. It's almost like it's saying that if human beings were cars, the fuel that runs them best is joy. We were not created ultimately for a different kind of a strength like fear or longing or ambition or pride. Ultimately, human beings are meant to run, especially in Christ, on joy. It makes sense. 
that there would be a strength in someone that walks in joy because the Bible itself says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so living is hard and loving is hard and leading is hard. But if God were to wake you up in the morning and send you out into the world to live and to love and to lead, the thing that would get you through with the most amount of endurance and perseverance would be joy. Joy would be the thing that he'd want for you. And so beyond that, there's another kind of profound philosophy in the idea of joy in the sense that um, Christian joy is really different from every other kind of joy that you'll experience. Christian joy in the Bible is defined as a completely separate category from the kind of joy that you'll experience in other other place in three, at least three different ways that I thought about this week. And, uh, and that is uh, that Christian joy through the Old and New Testament is a command, not a suggestion. The Lord wants his people strong. The Lord knows that his people were made to be joyful and that the strength that they were supposed to walk in was not in fear or in longing and pride, but in joy. And so it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Church, read with me in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8, that rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to rejoice. It's a command. Secondly, that Christian joy is different from any other kind of joy because Christian joy is not only unconditional, it's, it's anti-circumstantial. It's unconditional joy. Uncircumst- uncircumstantial joy, for example, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 10, Paul writes about the joy that he has in Christ, and he defines it this way. In verse 10, sorrowful, he says, yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Joy is not exclusive in Christ from even sorrow. So it's a commanded emotion. And any of us know, if we're Christian or not, that emotions are hard to command, but yet the paradox and irony is that the Bible is commanding us to have this kind of an emotion. And secondly, to not only have a kind of emotion, but an emotion within us to sing songs of joy and praise that sometimes is even partnered with the exact opposite emotion, to have a joy that can integrate even sometimes with sorrow. And lastly, our joy is different in Christ than if we were outside of Christ because our joy is completing. It's working towards completion. In John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be made complete. See that, that Jesus didn't even just make joy an emotion, he made it a characteristic of a person that can grow into maturity, into completion. And so what kind of a joy is this? The joy of the Lord is our strength. And this kind of a joy is an emotion. It's not just something that we sing without our heart or a disconnection from our heart. It is not just a suggestion, it's a command. And not only is it something that... Um, that happens happenstantially, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an uncircumstantial emotion that Christians will walk in because we are creatures in Christ that were made for no less than joy. Our calling will be found and carried out in nothing less than the emotion of joy. And so here's what I think is the heart, honestly, of what it means to have joy in the Lord or joy in Christ, is that all joy ultimately in or outside of Christ has to do with gratitude. I was talking to my buddy Thomas just uh, earlier this week, and he was doing this reading. Uh, um, I think it was a reading, or maybe it was from, from a podcast, but that, that the emotions in, in or outside of Christ of joy can't live and inhabit the same thought as fear. That the minute that there's any joy in someone's mind, that thought has now... Uh, expelled fear out of it. It's mutually exclusive from fear. And that in the same way that if a mind were to have fear inside of it, that joy could not at the same time simultaneously occupy a mind that has fear in it. And so joy and fear are mutually exclusive. 
So gratitude, therefore, is um, ultimately not something that um, we are grateful that we've done, but grateful for something that is done to us, which is why I believe that as we read through all the passages of Scripture, and none of the least of these is Isaiah 51 that we'll be looking at today, that Christians are creatures of joy because we are grateful for the greatest gift that we've ever received. We're grateful for grace. Grace is a word that means unmerited favor. Grace is more than forgiveness. Grace is not only what saves us, but what sanctifies us, what completes us, and what, what ultimately puts, puts us into God's glory. Grace is less a couch and more a car. And so, so all throughout the Old Testament, grace could be described towards a lovely poem or a lovely jewel or a diamond. It means favor. It means something that somebody likes and takes pleasure in. But the grace of God, of course, towards us is very counterintuitive because rather than our merit inducing the grace, it's simply his goodness that causes grace to fall on us. It is an unmerited favor that God has on us. It is a continual, perpetual smile. In other words, grace means that the most common facial expression that God has towards you is a smile. You are God's son in Christ or God's daughter in Christ in which there is only pleasure and delight. That is what grace means. And so then, if you really follow that chain of thought, it starts to make sense why grace can be commanded and unconditional and all of these things and completed in Christ. It's because then the opposite of grace is not actually sorrow, Excuse me, excuse me. The opposite of joy, the opposite of Christian joy, is actually not sorrow, but entitlement. Joy, all joy is rooted in in gratitude for something. And the Christian is commanded in every single season to be the most robust and full and overflowing joyful person. Not because they are putting a smile on their face or pretending that something is true that's not true. It's because they do know something is true and they can be grateful for something. And ultimately, the reason why Christians are commanded to have the most amount of joy is because they have the most amount to be grateful for. Because God has shown unmerited favor and mercy towards us, and the greatest expression on his face towards his children is his smile towards us. So sorrow is not actually an enemy to our joy. Bad circumstance is not an enemy to our joy. Sadness is not an enemy to our joy. Entitlement is the greatest enemy to our joy. And so the weapons of entitlement which are forgetfulness, foolishness, and false gratitude are really the things that will keep us down. Forgetfulness, Psalm 103, says to forget not his benefits. Have you guys ever read Psalm 103, his salvation? There it is on the screen. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives us all our sins. He heals all of our diseases. He redeems your life from the pit, yours and mine. He crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. We don't have a fake joy but a deep joy because we have the greatest gift to be grateful for as a Christian. C.S. Lewis says that one of the enemies of joy coupled into the, um, the foolishness of human entitlement, he talks about in The Weight of Glory, is not so much that we put our joy too high above the Lord, but rather that we settle our joys to lower and lesser things to our idols. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. 
Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In other words, in other words the, the yoke of stress, the yoke of sadness, of self-importance, self-indulgence, and pride. He's saying it's not because we've expected too much of God, but because expected too little and occupied the seat of what we defined our joy on as too small. That small thing could not satisfy us and is actually not really an enemy in our sorrow, but a friend because it's pointing us to us to a higher glory that we needed in the first place. And understand that what he's saying is that our joy is not too high, but it's too low. And that we are created for something more, which is why our sorrow points to God more than we think. And our sorrow, therefore, is not an enemy to our joy, but it's a friend because it's awakening a greater desire for a God that only it can fill. Lastly, um, potentially some of us could be struggling with a joylessness today because of false gratitude. And oftentimes, the counterfeit of something is the thing that robs us of the genuine thing. How many of you guys have ever seen on Instagram where somebody says grateful for and then proceeds to brag about a whole bunch of stuff that they've done? Grateful that I made a million dollars this year. Grateful that I talked to 100 you know, leaders at this global summit. Grateful that you know, this and this is going great for me. And, and ultimately, you know in your heart that there's a boundary line there because ultimately gratitude cannot be something that I've done but something that's been done to me. And we can sense, our radar goes off, that there is such a thing as false joy because there's such a thing as false gratitude. And Christian joy is leading us to neither of those things. There is a deep joy because joy is rooted in gratitude, and gratitude comes from the greatest gift we'd ever received in grace, which is Christ Jesus. And so, this is my point, all of that as an intro to lead up to the passage in Isaiah 51 today, is that if the greatest weapon to our joy is entitlement, then the greatest Weapon for our joy is remembrance. It's to remember who you are in him. Church, if, you're, if your head is low today, if your chin is down, if you're wearied and tired, if you can't seem to, to find energy, even though you're well-slept and even though you have good friends and even though, even though you're well-fed and well-paid, you still walk around in somberness and because you don't have joy, Right? then Psalm 51 and all the other passages really of Scripture would say that the reason why that is is because entitlement has killed your joy. But fear not, because there is a joy of salvation, Psalm 51 says. And the saint that wants to embrace joy, to be fueled and filled to overflow, would do well to start their days with remembrance. Who you are in him, who he is for you, and what he's done for you. A Christian, any person rather, that has... Some, a thought in their head that is not filled with gratitude, but rather entitlement, will never experience joy. But a Christian that is remembering the joy of their salvation, remembering the gift of grace in their life, the countenance of God's face towards you as pleasure, cannot stand to have anything else occupying their heart and mind uh, but joy. And so join with me in Isaiah 51, and this is what the passage says to us this morning in Isaiah 51 says, listen to me, and there are three listens in the passage today, almost like a father would talk to a child. You who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut. What does the saying go? You're just a chip off the old block. That's what this means. Look at the rock from which you were cut. Look, look at the, the block you were chipped off of and to the quarry that which you were hewn. He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. 
Remember your legacy. Remember the promise that has led an impenetrable promise from Genesis 3.15 on all the way until Jesus, the seed that was going to crush evil, was consistent, perpetual, and providential through all of the lines that was never interrupted, just as God said. Do you remember the promise? The rock from which you were cut? Look at Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who were both in their 90s, barren, and had the baby Isaac. They had birth. And because of God's word, not because of Sarah's womb, when I called him, he was only one man, but I blessed him just like I said that he would, that I would have. And I blessed him and made him many. And the Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. That word compassion, it's, it's a rich Hebrew word that sounds like womb. It's a motherly compassion. That a mother would never have contempt or disdain for a crying baby, but only compassion when the baby is crying in the middle of the night. It's not an annoyance to the mother. It's rather a call to the mother to express her joy and express her compassion on that baby. And that's exactly the kind of compassion like when Jesus prays for Jerusalem that he wishes he could gather them up like a mother hen under his wing. That's the kind of compassion. And he's turning his children's, all of his children's deserts, all of your days and my days, from wandering deserts into flourishing, blooming gardens of Eden. This is his business for his kids because there's only one emotion, right, that, that a father could have towards his child is compassion, his, his compassion for his child. And so um, my, <clears throat> my dad, if you guys uh, had been following my Instagram, made a quick little journey to our house in Simpsonville on Thursday, and he's always an adventure, and he's always a good story and a good laugh to tell. And he, um, he grew up in Hong Kong, which is uh, raising him up in a very different environment than I grew up in. And so he was like one of seven Chinese uh, brothers and sisters. And so he was his own man. He wanted to make his own way, and he didn't want to listen to what his father had to say, which is a great juxtaposition in kind with the Chinese culture, because Chinese culture is all about honor and doing what your parents are saying. And so when he was 16, he lied about his age to join the police force, and he left home without his father's approval, which was kind of prodigal son level type stuff, like it was not a good vibe between he and his dad. And so off he went, and he lied, and he joined the police force, and uh, he's definitely a shoot first, aim last kind of guy. And as he got out there, he found a church that he could uh, stay at. <clears throat> so he would train during the day and stay at the church, and he promised the priest that after he would graduate from police academy, he would go and make money and then pay the uh, priest back. <clears throat> and so that went on for two or three years, and he would pay what money he could, but he, he was in debt to the priest by the end of the time. And when it came time for him to graduate from the police force and he came back with the check to go and pay off the priest, the priest said, you don't need to pay for the rent because your father's been paying it the whole time. Something shifts when the status goes from stranger to son. You could have an ex-wife. You could have an ex-boss. You could have even right, an ex-friend or an ex-partner, but you can't have an ex-son. You can't have an ex-daughter because a daughter or a son is a daughter or son for life. And it changes the lens by which the relationship is governed from there on out. And so what happened within the, the great exchange of salvation, the joy of our salvation is this, is that what is, what is true of Jesus is now true of us. That he lived the life that we should have lived so that we could live the life that he was going to live with the Spirit. He got the cross and we got the Spirit. And so therefore... The Father's remark is this, as the Spirit fell on the shoulders of Jesus, of pleasure and delight is his remark towards you too. The greatest emotion that he ever expresses over you and over me is a smile of pleasure. He delights in you and me, even when we're messing up, even when we're at the bottom of the barrel, even when we're struggling. He does not have contempt for his child, but only compassion. 
And so it's an interesting thing, right, when you graduate from high school and you don't have to read the book anymore and the book's all of a sudden kind of fun. When it's your house and it's your lawn, you take pride in it. And the garden and the lawn that your parents used to make you have to do, now you actually wake up and you decide to do the kind of hobbies that your parents always wanted you to do and read the books. What is that that, the, that when the get-to or when the have-to becomes a get-to, there's pleasure and joy in it all of a sudden when the status shifts? And so what he says is to you and me is you're used to being a sojourner and a wanderer in a desert, but I didn't save you to live in a desert. I saved you to live in a garden. And so the struggles you're going through, that's not chastisement, that's discipline. The scripture says he disciplines those that he loves. And so the interpretation of your world and mine, the joy that we have when you get up in the morning and your boss is unruly and your kids aren't doing what they want you to do and so on and so forth, those things are not chastisements or punishment for shame. They're discipline to make you the person that you were meant to be in Christ. The things that you have, lest we become entitled or think that we earn the things that we have, they're not wages and paychecks. They are gifts given by a good father by his hand. And so we do not live a life of wandering sojourners. We live a life of a son or a daughter in the garden. And everything gets interpreted through that lens because when the status shifts, everything else changes within the relationship. And God does not have contempt on his children, only compassion, only pleasure. So next it goes on. A person that is struggling with joy shouldn't just make themselves happy and listen to more festive, festive songs and go to Starbucks and get more red cups. A person that wants to have joy should remember who they are and remember who he is. Because of Christ, you are a child. Because of Christ, God is our Savior. Isaiah 51 says, again, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out for me, and my justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily, my salvation is on the way, and my arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants die like flies, but my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. There's two really important biblical words in there alongside salvation, which help unpack and define what salvation really is, and that is righteousness and justice. And so righteousness and justice are not just the absence of something, but the presence of something. Righteousness means right relationship. It doesn't just mean following the rules, but it means a sense of right rapport. Anybody here have relationships within their family, within their friends, within their sphere that just aren't right right now? Righteousness wants in on that. Righteousness wants to make that right. Not that you should do the right thing or you write the Mother's Day card, but there would be righteousness between, that you would do right by them. Even if they don't do right by you, righteousness means that you're doing right by the people that you're in contact with. And justice is not just paying the penalty or paying the speeding ticket. I mean, that is a part of justice, but the whole fullness of justice is that everything would be whole. Anyone here have a broken relationship that needs to be healed? Justice wants in on that. Justice wants to make that thing right with family and with neighbors, that there would be healing to the land that kings would not only stop fighting wars, but they would partner together and work together. That's what justice would look like. And so righteousness and justice are the two stools by which his kingdom is propped up on and what salvation is really all about. In Christ, we are children. In Christ, he is our savior, which means that salvation is not just something that took, pla took, took place when you were in middle school at the front of the altar. Salvation is something that is still working its way out in you and me with fear and trembling. Salvation is something that is past, present, and future. 
He saved you from your sin, but he's saving you right now from a small life. You might not like it, but that's what he's up to. He's saving you from self-importance right now. You don't know it, and you might not like it, but he's saving you from your lust. He's saving you from your greed. Like, salvation is not just something that you graduated from. Salvation is something that's perpetually working itself out right now so that you might be a person full of righteousness and judgment, justice. That salvation is not just the rescue and escape from hell, but is the preparation to be ready for heaven. He doesn't want you going to heaven unprepared, so he's starting to get you ready right now with righteousness and justice. And so I want you to think of somebody that you would say is blooming in the fruits of the Spirit, somebody that's non-anxious. Then in a turbulent season, this person would come in, and not only would they not be turbulent, but they would bring peace and harmony to a situation. They would be anti-circumstantial, that they would, they would be a non-anxious presence. Do you know somebody that you could be around, and no matter how anxious the situation is, they just refuse to be anxious? Now, how, how many irate or cantankerous that the person at Dollar General is, they will not become contagious to that? And they only offer kindness, and they only offer joy. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is about. Do you know somebody like that? Do you know somebody who is others-interested, they are so interested, like, like when you see them at the party, they cannot stop listening and talking about what's going on in your life. They want to know how your kids are. They want to know how your school is going. They don't want to talk about what they're doing. They want to talk about what you're doing because they're interested in how righteousness and justice might be working out. You see how the fruits of the Spirit will change us. Have you known somebody before that, is, that has a, a history with God? You see, the thing about the flesh is that it loves its feelings too much. And it dances around from idea to idea to idea, and it just goes on to the next thing. But the, the people that have the fruit of the Spirit, they have this legacy of continuity. They can tell you their story about how God is guiding their life and perpetually, you know, through the ups and downs, has been consistent. They, they, they talk about prayer and Scripture in a way of having a history of God. The Scripture is saying that salvation is not just in our past, but in our present and our future. And when you think about that person, you're looking at your future. That's who the Spirit is in you and making you to be. Now listen, if you don't want to get convicted sometimes, don't ever read the message, because I feel like sometimes the message will just take it right off that religious category. Can I just read to you the fruits of the Spirit in the message? Don't read it if you don't want to be offended. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it to you. Just plug your ears. This is the way that the, the, the Galatians is read out in, in the message. It says this, fruits of the flesh. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. Now, you put orgies on there, I think we're mostly all free and clear. But when you talk about using sex as a mechanism for stress relief, it starts getting personal. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, Instagram. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religions, hello, paranoid loneliness, Everyone's out to get me. Nobody really loves me. Nobody would really love me if they knew what I was like. I'm not going to share. I'm going to hold my cards close to the chest. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfying what's a brutal temper and impotence to love or to be loved. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The victorious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Scroll, 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 scroll. 
uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way the fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life and serenity. This is what we're made for. Like if a car is meant to run on diesel and you put the wrong fuel in it, it's not going to run right. And human beings were made to run on the Spirit in the name of love. Faith expressing itself in love is the culmination of the law. We develop a willingness to stick with things, even if they don't go right. A sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about, It only gets in the way among those who belong to Christ. Everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified in the flesh. And so really what you're looking at when you see somebody filled with the Spirit and operating in the gifts of the Spirit is you're seeing your future. That is the image of Christ, and you were made by Jesus in the image of Christ, so you are watching your future. And so I want you to imagine as we go back to the passage in Isaiah God pulls up a chair and puts his arm out and offers anybody to step up to arm wrestle with God. How many think are going to have a win over God in an arm wrestling match? Imagine the audacity of somebody going up to God at an arm wrestling match, of all things. Like maybe in a sin match, it'd be like, okay, there's a rock in a hard place. I don't know what to do. But he steps up with the old right arm match and says, hey, See if any of you guys can win an arm wrestling match with me. This is what Isaiah 51 says. My righteousness draws near speedily, and my salvation is on the way, and my arm, my arm will be the thing that brings this thing about. Some of the reason why we don't have joy is we forgot that it was his arm. We thought it was ours. It's all of a sudden that you are walking in faith on the water, following Jesus, that you start thinking you're the magician walking on the water as if you're the one that brings the power. He goes, it's not your arm that's bringing righteousness and justice. It's mine. I called you when you wouldn't be called. I was the one that was completing you when you weren't ready to be completed. I was ambushing you even in your plans. I was subverting them into my plans. I was using my sovereign will to even use the plans of evil that were poised against you in 2021 to turn them over for good, lest you forget that you thought it was your arm that saved you, but it's really mine. The islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Receive joy today. It can't be made on your own, but only by looking at him and understanding that joy comes from gratitude, and as Christians, we have the most amount to be grateful for. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like flies. But my salvation, it will last forever, and my righteousness will never, ever fade. All right, going on. Uh, Isaiah 51, in verse 7, says this. Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have taken my instructions to heart, do not fear the reproach, reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. I rarely do this, but sometimes I, I just get points from the last sermon on Monday that I wish I would have said on Sunday. That just always happens. And uh, we had a message on, um, on peace, and I just thought about the profoundity of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 when he's talking about war and how we're made of dust. Genesis, he breathed his breath into us, and without the breath of God, we would be dust. 
and when it is that we expect other people to give us the things that we divinely desire, we only get famine and rage, says Isaiah. I want significance. I want approval. I want to be protected. And violence is essentially me demanding that dust creates divinity for me. But my spouse and my friends and my church, like me, are just made of dust, and I can't expect divine things to come out of dust. I will only get famine and rage when I expect finite things to give me infinite things. And so he says, look at this. Consider temporal versus eternal. Eight, for the moth will eat up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever, my salvation through all generations. Verse nine, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself in strength. Awake as in the days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab, or or Egypt is another word for Rahab, to pieces, who pierced the monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Those the Lord has rescued will return, and they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and singing, uh, sorrow and sighing will flee away. There's a little um, intellectual criticism of the Bible. I don't think it's a theory that really is well thought of today, but maybe in the 70s or so, that people thought maybe that the Bible was not talking about the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea. A Reed Sea was like nearby and maybe a comparable possibility to make things a little bit more susceptible to our, you know, our human, lowly understanding, comprehension. The Reed Sea was like a foot and a half, but of course the Reed Sea creates another paradigm and problem in and of itself because if the wind blew that day and cleared out a foot of water for the Israelites to, to walk through, you then have to deal with the problem that you now have a foot and a half of water drowning the Egyptians. So either way, we know that it's going to be impossible. But the personification of the sea, whether it's in Genesis or when the flood comes you know, during Noah's day, is a picture of an untainable power and force that can be sailed on and can be fished in but cannot be controlled by any man. So... So when Jesus walks on the water or calms the storm, it's the disciples that say, who is this that can command the water and the waves? There's only one person with that calling card. Who in the heck can split the ocean in two so there's dry ground for the Israelites to walk across and then a flood of water that crashes over their enemies, except for God, except for for Yahweh. But beyond that, this is even a more profound, I think, picture of salvation because even harder than it would be to split an ocean to have the family of God walk across so the enemies of God would be collapsed upon, it would be even more difficult than to split a sea is to separate east from west, right? So the calling card of the ocean being split is pointing to a sovereign king that does impossible things. But what are we talking about here when we even get down even beneath that so much harder than it would be to split a sea or move a mountain is to split the east from the west. And so that's exactly what Psalm 103 says about our salvation. It's not just about splitting a sea. That would be easy compared to this. Psalm 103 says, although it's impossible to separate a sin from a man, Psalm 103 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Christian, if you are not walking in joy today, It is not something to be bought or sold or faked. It is something to be remembered. Joy comes from gratitude, and gratitude should be the mark of every Christian person because a Christian among all people has the most amount to be grateful for. 
And so if you want to be filled with joy, then remember who you are and remember who he is and remember what he's done, that you are a child because of Christ and he is our savior in Christ and he has saved you in Christ. I want to read a couple quotes to you today to consider what I think Psalm 51 is, is asking us to consider when it talks about the moths and the rust and the temporal nature of human joys. A list of um, a few atheists and, a, and quotes from their deathbed. So if you go online, you can look up some of these quotes, and there's actually 20 of them or so, and they're pretty remarkable and pretty profound, and they're um, actually startling. And so I'm going to read a couple of them. They're all very similar, but I just want you to listen to the names that I recognize, because there were also famous people that I didn't recognize. But one of the people I recognized was Thomas Hobbes, a political philosopher, on his deathbed says, I say again, if I had the whole world at my disposal, I would give it to live one day. I'm about to take the leap into the dark. Thomas Hobbes is a famous political philosopher that was important in um, Enlightenment theory and and the way that even our American culture and political system is set up. And and that was his final words, very bright man that ultimately had to die just like us. Thomas Paine, give me liberty, give me death. You've heard that, right? The leading atheistic writer in the American colonies, he says this on his deathbed, stay with me for God's sake. I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give words, give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me for I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been one of them. The Bible says that what you are seeing live for today and boast as though it's forever is not forever. And some of the Proposition and invitation of joy is recognizing the temporal for what's eternal. Recognizing where we ought to be vesting our joys because oftentimes humans don't put their joys too high. They put them too low in small things. Sir Thomas Scott of the Chancellor of England says, until this moment I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of Almighty. Voltaire, a famous anti-Christian atheist, says this, I swallow nothing but smoke. I have intoxicated myself with the Incense that turned my head, I am abandoned by God and man. He said to, this, his, to his physician, Dr. Fochin, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. When he was told that this was not possible, he said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. All night long, he cried for forgiveness. Napoleon Bonaparte, French emperor, who like Adolf Hitler, brought death to millions by satisfying his greedy power-mad selfish ambition for the world conquest. I die before my time, and my body will be given back to the earth. Such is the fate of him who has been called the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. A few more. Joseph Stalin, Soviet uh, Georgian revolutionary and politician in Newsweek interview with um, Stalin, the daughter of Joseph Stalin. She told told of her father's death. My father died a difficult and terrible death. God grants an easy death only to the just. At what seemed the very last moment, he suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane or perhaps angry. His left hand was raised as though it were pointing at something above and bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was full of menace. The next moment, he was dead. And lastly, Gandhi, a great social activist and a non, the, the, the originator of nonviolence, uh, even throughout the world, but in India, in his home. At his death, he said, for this First time in 50 years, I felt myself in a slough of despond. All about me is darkness. I'm praying for light. But yet the Apostle Paul says this 
as he heads towards death, oh, death, where is your sting? King David says, yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Augustus Montag uh, Tabplay, I can't even pronounce his name, famous guy, <laughs> the author of the evangelical hymn of the 18th century Rock of Ages, published in, published in 1776, during his final in, in, illness, says this, the consolations of God to so unworthy a wretch are so abundant that he leaves me nothing to pray for but their continuance. Oh, what delights, who can fathom the joy of the third heaven? The sky is clear, there is no cloud. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. No mortal man can live after the glories which God has manifested to my soul. And Jesus Christ says to all of us, even in this room, I am the resurrection and life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And so if we want to have joy, we might do well to remember, to remember what's most true. Joy is not just a, a fleeting feeling. Joy is a reality. It's a fact and a truth that we find in the cross. And the, the cross reminds us that what's most true of us is we are his children because of what he's done on our behalf. And he's our savior because of what he's done on our behalf. And he has saved us. And although we experience temporal sorrow, maybe for a day and for a moment, we experience ultimate joy. How can sorrow and joy live in the same moment? Because joy recognizes that sorrow is only temporary, but joy is for eternity. That without Christ, we live in temporary joy and live eternal sorrow. But in Christ, we can only live temporary sorrow and live for eternal joy. And so there's something about a lesser joy giving way to a greater one. Maybe you've experienced the end of a temporal, you know, sexual joy before. And there's something really ruining about the temporariness of fleeting joy. That even before you experience the joy, you kind of anticipate the fleetingness of it in the next morning, and so therefore the joy is not enjoyable in the first place. But there's another kind of joy that recognizes the broader spectrum of eternity versus temporal. Maybe it is the labor of love of hosting a foster child. Maybe it's um, discipling a middle schooler. Maybe it's seeing a family member come to Christ after 50 years on their deathbed that understands then that the temporary sorrow was all for a purpose and finds its joy anyways. And so that's where I think that the Apostle Paul can say with great sorrow, I have great joy because he knows that sorrow is temporary and joy is eternal. And so the reasons why Christians should have the greatest and the strongest and most counter-conditional joy is because our joy is rooted in the greatest gift we've ever received in the grace of Jesus. That what was true of him is now true of us. And the greatest expression of countenance on his face is not contempt but compassion and he is smiling at you and has joy over you. You can have joy because he enjoys you. And so the manger brings us a great amount of joy. We can find joy in this Christmas in the manger where it says that the shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby in a manger, wrapped in cloths. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace on whom his favor rests. The baby couldn't have been earned. The baby couldn't have been made by anybody. The baby couldn't have been planned by anyone. Gratitude, which is the ultimate root of joy, 
is not good done, but good done to the person that experiences it. It is a great favor that has no merit in it whatsoever. And so there's no greater place to find joy that we can boast in than the manger. It is a gift given for no other reason other than his goodness. That his right arm was the one that was winning victories on our behalf. It was him that has guided us through the Red Sea of Salvation and collapsed it on our enemies. It was him that has saved us and is him that has been victorious in our life. And so if we want to have joy, we could find it in no other place than the manger to remember, to remember the joy of our salvation, that we have received the greatest gift that anyone's ever received in Jesus. And so I just have a couple of uh, intentional questions as I close this in prayer that you might think about with a spouse, with a loved one, to be intentional about as you discuss. But uh, the first one just has to do with entitlement. So the question I would want to ask you is... uh, Something along the lines of, uh, how has entitlement robbed you of joy? Maybe consider, oh, excuse me, let me rephrase. My question was this, uh, where has grace grown entitled? Where have you seen uh, grace or salvation as something that happened a long time ago that is no longer relevant to your life, that God saved you, but now it's your job to pick up what he started? Where has grace been given to earning or entitlement would be the first question. And the second question I have for you is, instead of that, where might grace be remembered? Where might you remember his goodness and his arm in your life? Um, Not forgetting you, but having favor on you, resting upon you, just because it was his decision to do so in the first place. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.